You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead today. The IPO market definitely opening back up. But is the hype overdone? Savers value struggling to hold its opening price. Our guests are split on what this means for the broader market. We'll debate that and look at how to position. Plus, meet the new Bed Bath & Beyond. It's actually Overstock.com, which bought the digital assets and IP in bankruptcy and now is changing the name of its website to make that known. The Overstock CEO joins us live with his strategy. And millions of consumers may have up to 400 bucks less to spend each month when student loan payments resume. But there are three retailers, three retailers that could supposedly benefit from it. We will tell you which ones. First, though, let's get the latest on these markets. I noticed the Nasdaq is lagging today. It is lagging. And that technology trade is maybe losing some of that steam. Artificial intelligence may be losing a little bit of steam. I'm going to tell you why, though, in just a second. Sentiment is a big part of the story, Kelly. Now, the Dow Industrial is up by about just about three quarters of 1%, 250 points to the upside, 34,104. 4,391 for the S&P 500, up about one-third of 1% or 14 points. To give you some context around the trading range so far today, at the highs of the session, we were up 22 points, down five, down modestly at the lows. So, again, tilting at least for right now towards the upper end of that range. And the Nasdaq Composite just about flat on the session as Kelly points out, underperforming the date, the Nasdaq Composite, 13580 Where there is some positivity in the marketplace today is in many of the financial institutions, specifically banks. A lot of that is sentiment driven around the Fed stress test, every bank passed. But even if you weren't part of the big group of banks that were part of the stress test, the fact that the banking system appears to be, at least for now, on the healthier side of things is pushing up many of the big banks. The top performers, many of them, the S&P 500, Wells Fargo up 4%, Goldman Sachs 3.5%, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, even regional banks like M&T Bank up about 25 to 3% as well. So keep an eye on those financial institutions on the heels of those Fed stress tests. And then one thing that has been dragging on sentiment. Earlier this morning, in the pre-market, 5, 6 a.m. during Worldwide Exchange and Squawk Box, we had talked about the relative strength in shares of Micron on the heels of a more generally bullish earnings report after yesterday's close. It was up about 3 to 4% pre-market. It is now down 3.5%. You can see that kind of slide that we've seen pretty much since the opening bell and throughout the course of the day so far, hovering just around session lows. Micron, again, generally bullish. Demand for chips, memory-wise, because of what else? The AI boom. Well, some of that is not outweighing some concerns about China, the ban on certain products there. So, Kelly, Micron may be one of those battleground stocks that showed some positivity but is losing some steam. AI not seemingly able to get that in the green today. I'll send things back over to you. Important to note, Tom, thanks. We've also got three IPOs opening today for the first time in a long time. Savers Value Village, Kodiak Gas Services, and Fidelis Insurance, they're all open now. Uh, Savers listed at 18, opened at 24.77, so we're about a dollar and a half below that mark right now. Uh, Kodiak listed at 16, opened below that, and is still trading around 15.70. Fidelis listed at 14, opened at 13.10, and that's right about where we are now. Pretty rare uh, to not even see the stocks open above list price. Let's turn to Bob Bassani for more on these offerings and the impact, Bob. Well, here's the, the interesting point about this. There's an obvious winner, and you saw that, what was going on there, Savers Value Village. Uh, this is in the retail slash thrift space. 
The other two are in different spaces. So these are three companies all in the roughly 300 million range they were trying to raise in different spaces. Fidelis is a big global insurance company. Insurance has not traded particularly great recently as a sector. And yes, that does matter when you're dealing with the pricing. Uh, same thing with the gas business. We have Kodiak in the gas business, another sector that hasn't traded particularly well. So it's not surprising they traded a bit below their initial price talk. Uh, Savers Value Village had an astonishing story. This is a company, and I did a story on yesterday, Kelly, that ticked off a lot of big boxes. So Savers Value is profitable. It's growing. Thrift is really cool. Young people love it. They call it vintage. It's growing. Uh, and it's got an ecology angle. You've heard, angle. You've heard about people throwing away food. There's people who throw away millions and millions of pounds of clothes. And they're basically in that business right now. So there's a, an ecology angle. There's an AI angle uh, that's out there. The data analytics help them sort through the clothing and price them right. There's even a recession angle. In theory, thrift is recession-proof. But if there's a recession, it could potentially do even better. So this just ticked off an awful lot of boxes out there for various investors. Finally, Kelly, I would say that people who say, well, Two of the three actually priced below the price talk. Isn't that a disappointment? And I don't feel that way. What happens here is this is a discovery process. It's an art, not a science of actually pricing these. The important thing is that the deals got done. Now, maybe this will say to people who are trying to go IPO in the gas space, their pricing may have to come down a little bit, or in the insurance business, same thing. Uh, and maybe it's a good sign uh, for other people that are out there in the retail space, for example. But these are very, very specific stories. So, Kelly, the important thing to me is the IPO business is opening up. I don't know if we can necessarily say Reddit is necessarily going to come in the next uh, you know, few weeks necessarily. But look at Kava. It's done very well. That's a really good sign for, say, Panera Bread. That's been sitting out there for a while now. People have been talking about that as a possibility. So remember, these things trade on sector relationships. So far, the important thing is the deals got done. And I think, Kelly, July, you're going to see some deals. Normally, July is Deadsville for IPOs. I think you're going to see some more deals come out of this. To your point, Bob, it looks like Sheehan may be the next big candidate. And, you know, they've already been trying to prepare people, right. uh, you know, give people a little overseas tour that backfired right. somewhat. We can get into that later. But if they come to market, this would be a much more sizable and significant offering. Yeah. So Sheehan is sort of um, fast fashion uh, in, in China, it's sort of like the H&M of China. By the way, this is um, reportedly, the way I understand, this is a confidential filing. It's not a public filing. So a confidential filing means they have filed with the SEC, but the file itself is not visible to the public yet. And that's an important distinction. We don't know what exactly is going on. They'll make a statement or you'll get reportedly to leak out. Uh, so I, I think the implication for this, if it's correct, that this is a, uh, a, a private filing that we're seeing, is probably a fall listing. That's probably what it would mean to me. Uh, I think there are some other things that are floating out there. Oddity Tech, for example, is a big makeup uh, uh, you know, beauty company. They filed, uh, and I think they have a good chance of maybe going public uh, in July. I, the, the question is the bigger names, the, you know, the Reddits that are out there, Arm, for example, some of those other big names. I'm not sure this today's activity necessarily sends a huge signal right. to them. They may be looking for other signals, like how the tech market is doing, for example. Fair enough. Bob, thank you very okay. much. Bob Bassani tracking all the action today at the New York Stock Exchange. So is the return of these IPOs a bullish sign for the overall markets, or is it overhyped, much like the recent rally? My next two guests have very different takes on that. Siva, the CIO of Equities at Federated Hermes, and Komal Srikumar is president of Srikumar Global Strategies. Welcome. Not exactly a bull bear debate, but may take on that sheen a little bit. So, Siva, I'll start with you. You're more constructive. Tell me why. 
Uh, we've been through an 18-month bear market already, uh, Kelly. So to a certain extent, just time is now on our side. Um, I think you look at this market and you say it's very narrow. It's been led by big cap tech. Whole thing's going to roll over. Or you can look at it and say it's going to broaden out. I mean, the broader market is trading at 16 and a half times, not the 20 times that the cap-weighted market is trading at. Um, the odds of a recession are declining. They're still there, but... Um, you know, it's been waiting for Godot on that. Um, you know, inflation is coming off the boil. Maybe the Fed is close to done. Um, you know, maybe this rocky landing is getting closer to the end. And if that's the case, you know, the broader market's got stocks that are a little more cyclical. A lot of small cap growth stocks have been lagging, uh, large cap value stocks, financials, international. Um and these are areas where you can get a lot of stocks that we like that are trading at, you know, low double digit, even single digit multiples um, with a pretty good recovery in them. If um, if we're going to get out of this, what we've been calling a rocky landing, a asynchronous recession sector by sector over the last 18 months. So and I think time's on our side. I mean, I, I don't know the back half. Who knows? But right. 24 is going to be better and 25 is going to be better than that. And against those numbers, the market looks pretty good, actually. Shri, why don't you see it? Or maybe I'm, I'm going to assume you don't see it quite the same way. What are the risks that you foresee? Why don't you think maybe the time is on investors side? I don't uh, go with that same view uh, as Steve expressed, uh, Kelly. And the reasons are, first of all, look at history. 2007 was a great year for IPOs, especially uh, tech stocks, NASDAQ stocks. And we know what happened at the end of 2007 with the recession beginning. So the IPO boom has never been a good leading indicator of what is in store for the equities. Second, you have had equities and uh, treasuries diverge in terms of what they are signaling for the market. Even though the equities have done extremely well, on the other hand, the bond market yield curve has inverted and the inversion increased further today as a result of the statements that Jerome Powell made in Sintra, Portugal yesterday and in Madrid today, indicating that he was going to increase interest rates several times, including twice this year. So I consider the recession as essentially having been postponed, not denied. Right. That in turn means that that is yet to be incorporated in equities. And that's typically the story that we have in history. The equities are late to the party. They do not recognize a recession. Treasuries, even in 2007, 2008, signaled the Great Recession long before equities did. Equities were booming during mm -hmm. the recession. And even more impressive to me, Steve, is the fact that uh, the yield curve inverted before the pandemic hit. So <laughs> one way or another, it saw trouble coming. I'm not saying it forecasted that exactly. What do you make of the inverted yield curve? And, and Shree's right. I mean, today, again, we see twos, tens at pretty historic levels. It's been inverted for a while, Kelly. Um, you know, we'll see. I, you know, people have been talking about a recession forever. As again, we've been the tech sector is coming out of a recession. We've had a huge inventory correction. That's now starting to pass. Um, you know, the IBO market tree, I, I love you to death, but it's not exactly booming right now. I mean, it's it's been literally the longest underperformance of IPOs, I think, at least in the 40 years I've been investing money. I mean, it's been virtually closed 
for 18 months. Okay, we've had a few deals. I like the fact that there's now a sign of life out there, um, but I wouldn't call it a boom that's presaging some kind of hyper exuberance in the equity markets. Everyone is worried. Sentiment is negative. Um, the entire world is forecasting a recession. And, um, you know, companies are sort of battening down the house, house hatches. When all the players in the chess game are making the same play, that's often not the play that's going to work. So, you know, I, I would say we're kind of ready for the recession. We priced that in. And now we're starting to price in the potential for a better market and economy. Um, only six months out, you're in 2024. And certainly, Shri, Steve, nom, nom, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that IPOs are booming, but IPOs did boom in 2007 and Absolutely. they gave a wrong yeah. signal. And yeah. today, what I'm saying is that as you have IPOs coming back, they come back because they think interest rate increases are ending and interest rates are going to come down. And the reason why IPOs were low for the last 15, 16 months was because of substantial increase in Fed interest rates. And if Jerome Powell is saying what, if he's going to act like he said in the last couple of days, and there are more rate increases, that's going to put the kibosh on IPOs. And that's why Tree. I think it is still a bad signal. True. Jerome Powell is probably the world's worst forecaster of what the Fed is going to do 12 months out. I mean, back in 2020, when people like us were screaming at him to raise rates, he was saying he was never going to hike again and, you know, rates are going to be at zero forever. And, you know, 12 months later, he embarked on 500 basis points a hike. So, you know, I think he's going to be data dependent. He's put a lot of hikes in. Um, he's going to keep jawboning this thing as best he can. Maybe he has a hike or two left. But let's see. I mean... We think uh, the CPI numbers uh, next, uh, actually tomorrow, the core CPI numbers, should be getting closer to his range. The The jobs report next Friday, Kelly, is going to be, we think, pretty soft. Even the consensus has it at that level. So there's going to be reasons for him to say, let's keep watching um, how this unfolds. We've done a lot of hiking. But yeah. even if he hikes once or twice more, he's pretty close to the end of this hiking cycle. Well, I have enjoyed this thoroughly. We'll have to do act two, uh, maybe after that payrolls report. Steve Oth, Kamal Shri Kumar, have to leave it there, gentlemen, but this was really appreciated. Thank you so much. Thank you very Thank much, you. Kelly. Call it kind of a bull bear debate on the economy, markets, really. President Biden, meantime, speaking on the Supreme Court's decision today to end affirmative action in college admissions decisions. Let's get over to Emily Wilkins. She has more detail. Hi, Emily. Hello. Well, Biden said came out today said he, saying that he strongly disagrees with a Supreme Court ruling that would effectively ban the ability for colleges to use race as a factor when considering which students to admit. Here's a little bit more about what Biden had to say. Today, the court once again walked away from decades of precedent and make as the dissent has made clear. The dissent states in today's decision, quote, rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress, end of quote. I agree with that statement from the dissents. 
Biden also urged companies to continue to work towards diversity in their workforces and among their employees. And he suggested that colleges should also continue to try to find diverse student bodies, potentially through looking at the amount of adversity that applicants has ha have had to face and factoring that in. We've also already begun to see a response from some colleges. Harvard University, one of the two universities that was listed in the lawsuit, has come out with a statement saying that they are now going to be considering an essay where students Students and applicants could potentially talk about their personal experiences with race, something the judge's uh, opinion seems to leave open as a way that universities can still look at diversity. It's also interesting to go back to that 2003 decision where uh, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote that these programs should no longer be needed by 2028, and the court kind of cited that. Roberts did today, saying, therefore, this decision doesn't conflict with that ruling because it would start at that date. What about the implications for the workplace, Emily? I mean, this could have potentially massive implications. I mean, we are talking really about a group of highly selective elite universities who really do use affirmative action to make sure that their student bodies are diverse. And of course, companies want students from those universities. And so this might change companies to sort of have to rethink where do they go to recruit? Where do they look for in potential employees? That kind of mindset needs to change, I think, both at the corporate level and at the university level. Interesting. Emily Wilkins, thank you. We appreciate your update. Mortgage rates are jumping after this morning's GDP revision. Diana Olick has the latest read for us. Another big round number again, Diana. I know, Kelly. Look, bond yields surged after that higher revision on GDP, as well as the big drop in jobless claims and mortgage rates just followed. The average rate on the 30-year fix jumped 13 basis points this morning, crossing back over 7% for the first time since the end of May. That, according to Mortgage News Daily, mortgage rates loosely follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury. I would note, though, that buyers seem to be getting used to this new higher normal. Mortgage applications to buy a home have been rising for three straight weeks. New home sales surged much higher than expected. And while the report on pending sales of existing homes that we got this morning showed a drop, the realtors said that is all about lack of supply, not about lack of demand. Kelly? Diana, thank you. Diana Olick, 7% mortgage rates are back. Coming up, a major retail rebranding. Overstock.com announcing it'll relaunch as Bed Bath & Beyond in the coming weeks after buying their bankrupt rival's IP. CEO Jonathan Johnson joins me next. Plus, apocalypse fed now. Our guest is bearish on every single fintech stock and one of America's biggest card companies because of the launch of the Fed's new payment system next month. We have those details ahead. As we go to break, here's a quick look at markets with a Dow up 234 points today. The Russell up 1.2% while the Nasdaq is down six points. There's your trade for those saying the rally will broaden out. Uh, S&P up 15. The 10-year yield 385. Wow. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back. Shares of Overstock.com jumping 19, almost 20% today. The company acquiring digital and intellectual property assets from bankrupt retailer Bed Bath & Beyond for about $21.5 million. The all-cash deal includes the retailer's website, domain names, trademarks, trade names, patents, customer database, loyalty program data, and other brand assets. Overstock already changing its website name to Bed Bath & Beyond in Canada today, and will make that change here in the U.S. in the coming weeks. Joining me now is Overstock.com CEO Jonathan Johnson. It's great to have you back. Welcome. Thank you. Why go all the way here? This is a big move. To, you're effectively, is this just for a temporary period of time or from now on? I mean, do you need to change the whole corporate name to, to Bed Bath? Well, we'll be doing businesses, Bed Bath & Beyond. It really describes who we've become. You know, we started out 20 plus years ago as a liquidator, 
who became a general merchandiser. Now we're a home furnishings and, and furniture company. And there was a lot of headwind with the name Overstock. Headwind with customers who, who were confused who we were and what we were selling. Headwind with suppliers that didn't want to necessarily sell if it was associated with liquidation. Bed Bath & Beyond, really great, iconic brand, loyal customers, and it describes who we are. So I think this, we're taking a headwind and replacing it with, we hope, a tailwind sure. for real growth. I've been one of those confused customers looking at, you know, like you mentioned, furniture and things. I'm like, well, is, you know, if it was Overstock, you know, was it, like there was, but you still had 20 years of brand equity in Overstock.com. It's a bit of a risk, isn't it, to trade that for Bed Bath & Beyond? You know, there's some risk. We did do a lot of research uh, before we did this deal. The Bed Bath & Beyond brand is still strong. So, you know, mismanagement may have hurt the business prospects, but the brand is still strong. Also, the customers at Bed Bath & Beyond really have an overlap with our customers. And we'll do this transition slowly where the Overstock customer will come to the new website come August and we'll recognize it, but so will the Bed Bath & Beyond customer. And then over time, we'll sunset out the Overstock feel. Are they gonna expect to get 20% off and percent to coupon? And you know, will there be any confusion on that front, do you think? Well, look, we've always been site sales and coupons. We're a high-low retailer, just like Bed Bath & Beyond has been. So I think initially, as we probably spend a little bit more on marketing at the beginning of this transition, they can expect big coupons. But one thing that Bed Bath & Beyond customer will realize is that our non-couponed price are really good. And I think people will be very surprised with the deals that Overstock and now Bed Bath & Beyond is able to offer and has been offering. And it seems like $21 million is a steal for you know, such a, a, law, a storied, vaunted, widely recognized retail brand. Did you have any real competition? Uh, there was some, but I think we came in with a with a bid that would prohibit or discourage bottom feeders from coming in, as they sometimes do in bankruptcy. For us, the brand meant something. It was more than just the customer list because we had a name that we were eager to figure out how to rebrand, and we could spend hundreds of millions of dollars in years picking a new name, or we could buy a name that people know and people love. And, you know, when Bed Bath was going out of business... There was a lot of hue and cry on social media, and here we are to save an iconic brand. Would, is there going to be more to come in this kind of rebranding strategy? As we've seen with many um, direct-to-consumer, I guess, digital assets, they've ultimately opened a lot of physical stores. Is that something that would ever make sense for you, do you think, or not? We like our asset-light business model. We don't have physical stores. We're an internet company, and we think what we're doing is combining a business model that works with an iconic brand. And we think those two things together really set us up for growth and will differentiate us from the Bed Bath that you know, ran into troubles and ran out of business. We think we can do this better because of this asset light business model. Is there any more acquisition, uh, you know, digital asset acquisition on the horizon? This is a period where we might see more kind of retail choppiness and, and churn in this post-pandemic world, maybe if there's more consumer pressure. So is this kind of the big vision or is there going to even potentially be more to come? You know, one of the things that our team has done so well is we've protected our P&L and our balance sheet. And so we finished last quarter uh, with two, $375 million in the bank. It allowed us to play offense. We still have a strong, healthy balance sheet. We're going to be very opportunistic in how we play offense. Right now, making sure we do this transition to Bed Bath & Beyond, do it right. There are some operational hurdles. 
As long as we do that right, I think, you know, we'll keep our eyes open and look for the next opportunity. Quick final question. What is demand like right now, you know, for how home furnishings, that whole category where we're seeing strong new home demand, but then the rest of the category a little bit more quiet. What, what do you, what's your read on demand? So the macro, the macro environment for our industry is still weak, and we think it'll be that way for a while. People are still excited to ex spend their money on experiences, you know, whether that's a, a concert or a trip, that's still there. But that's what's created this opportunity for us, and we think with this big new customer base that we're acquiring and using the Welcome Rewards loyalty program and adding that to our Club O loyalty program. We think there's a lot to gain here and really will create some good momentum. Well, if the flight delays get worse, people might go back to redoing their, their houses or something. Well, uh, we can only hope so. Right. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on a very big day for your company. Thank appreciate you, appreciate it. Best of luck. Jonathan Johnson, what do I call it now with bedbathandbeyond.com? Let's go there. All right, let's do it. Markets right now have the Dow up just off session highs, 240 points, was nearly 300 earlier. S&P up 15, NASDAQ only down a point. We could see some green. Now let's get to some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. And Fryer Battery was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas upgrading it to overweight with a $13 price target in a bull case of 30 stocks at nine today. He believes they can show meaningful progress on commercial milestones like battery production, delivery of their first sales to customers. Shares are popping 19% today. And here's what the CEO told us yesterday about their role in the future of energy. Batteries need to be included absolutely everywhere in the energy transition. 75% of all decarbonization efforts will have to have batteries in them. So I think it's a matter of education and just waking up to the fact that batteries is the next oil. And today's stock pop is turning the stock to the green for the year, up about 4.5%. This is the highest level we've also seen since March. For more on that call, head over to CNBC.com pro. Over to Contessa Brewer now for the CNBC News Update. Contessa? Hi, Kelly. The NFL has suspended three players today indefinitely for violating the league's gambling policy. The NFL says Indianapolis Colts' Isaiah Rodgers, Rashad Berry, and free agent Demetrius Taylor made bets on games last season. Now they will have to sit out at least until the end of the 2023 season, and then at that point they will be able to petition for reinstatement. After nearly three years, a California task force presented a 500-page report making recommendations to state lawmakers on enacting reparations. Their extensive work makes suggestions about how to compensate black people in the state for the harms of slavery. Lawmakers will use those recommendations to propose future bills. And New York City fire officials say the flagship Tiffany store on Fifth Avenue caught fire this morning, ignited by a transformer malfunction. Firefighters did not say how much damage was done inside, but nobody got hurt. The iconic store just reopened in April after renovations, which had taken like three years. Wow. The scaffolding, and the, it's been blocked up there for so long. Robert Frank had just brought us those uh, images, and now this, Contessa, thanks. Sure. Contessa Brewer. And before we go, we want to mention one more very notable story. Nobel laureate economist Harry Markowitz passed away last week at the age of 95. Markowitz is most remembered for turning the way Americans thought about investing on its head by introducing the idea of diversification. It became the basis for modern portfolio theory, which was fleshed out in his doctor 
doctorate dissertation in 1952. He earned his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago two years later after studying under another future Nobel laureate, Milton Friedman. That movement remains the way most advisors build portfolios for clients to this day. And the way Markowitz came up with that theory is a bit of a surprising one. Here's his good friend, noted index investor Mark Hebner on that origin story. He was waiting to meet with his uh, professor who was helping him decide what his his PhD dissertation would be on. And he was sitting in the room with a stockbroker. And the stockbroker actually is the one that suggested that maybe he applies what he learned uh, in mathematics to the stock market. Believe it or not, nobody had really done this. And so this is really the reason he gets this prize is he quantified these elements of risk. And he did so with what's called the standard deviation, which is really, that's a little confusing. People roll their eyes when you start talking about standard deviation, but think about how much do returns deviate from their average. And that's a quick way to think about it. And they do, and they do a lot. (laughs) Now, about 15 years after that dissertation came out, Markowitz founded hedge fund Arbitrage Management, one of the first firms to do computerized trading. Throughout his life, he also wrote or co-authored more than 15 books on investment theory and computer programming, and was involved in the development of a SimScript programming language used in simulations and communications network, and was arguably the genesis of the gaming world we know today. By the way, Mark Hebner there thought Harry's insights, especially about risk, are still not fully incorporated into modern investing. To learn more, you can check out the website Mark has created called harrymarkowitzinterviews.com. Markowitz is survived by four children, one stepchild, 13 grandchildren, and more than a dozen great-grandchildren. Rest in peace. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Federal Reserve is set to launch its instant payment service called FedNow next month. It's been in the works for several years now, but the U.S. is actually behind a lot of other countries when it comes to speeding up payments. The U.K., the EU, South Africa, just a few of the countries already using technology. And the impending adoption here is expected to have a wide-ranging impact on both Main and Wall Streets, especially on debit card usage and the stocks most exposed to that. Dan Dolev is on set with me to explain why this launch makes him bearish on fintech stocks. Welcome back, Dan. Aaron Klein of Brookings has been studying how this launch could help close the income inequality gap. Aaron, you think it's a pretty big deal. Let's discuss. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to be on. Look, 70 percent of people that go to check cashers in America have bank accounts. They're paying exorbitant fees because basic banking takes too long. And speeding up America's payment system is going to be a major driver to reduce overdraft fees, check cashing fees, late fees and give people more access to their own money faster. So again, kind of walk us through what this will actually change, look, and feel like once it goes live in the next, I guess, month. Well, the sad thing is it alone isn't going to be enough. So right now, if you got a check, if you got uh, walked out of work today with your paycheck Thursday afternoon and you went to deposit it Friday, June 30th, it wouldn't be available till Monday, July 3rd, right? So what happens come the first of the month when you have money due? What needs to happen is not only a faster payment system on the back end, but also corresponding regulations on the front end. Because right now, the Fed is just set to launch this system, but not actually require its usage. And that, I think, could portend to having less impact than it ought to have. So how and where do you think we'll start to see it show up first? Well, I think you're going to start to see some banks offer faster funds. Look, The banks themselves built their own real-time payment system years ago. Right. 
but only some of the banks have joined, and the Federal Reserve kind of chilled implementation by other banks by promising to build this system four years ago. Look, it took most central banks one to two years to build this. Why it took us four, who knows? But until banks, so I think the first thing you'll see is banks saying, come get your money faster. And whether they charge you for that or not, I don't know. Some banks already offer that, but they charge you for it a little bit. And then hopefully more and more banks offer this to their customers. Understood. And finally, Aaron, before we let you go, you met, we sort of started this on the point about inequality. And you do think that the speed of payments alone is you know, creating an unnecessary burden on lower income people. So this could help to unwind that just faster access to cash, both on the receiving end and on the sending end. Absolutely. Look, every overdraft fee is paid by somebody who ran out of money in their bank account. Many of the big banks have already started and smaller banks lowering their overdraft fees. And they found in the process that one of the things that does it the best is giving people access to their money faster. So the faster you can give people access to their money, those who are living on the margin paycheck to paycheck, the more of these fees, overdraft fees, check cashing fees, late fees they can avoid, uh, in which case it just puts more money in their pocket. One final stat, one out of 12 Americans spends $350 or more a year in overdraft fees. Just returning that is about the same as a 1% increase in uh, real wages. Hmm. And we heard the president emphasize again yesterday how he wants to see those go away. And this could be a, a, one way of doing so, Aaron. Thanks. Let me turn back to Dan Dolliv now for a look at the stock impact. And I can imagine why you'd be bearish on fintech stocks, thinking, well, a lot of them offer this as an innovation, saying, hey, we'll give you your access to your funds sooner through a variety of techniques. And now I guess that everyone will be able to get access to that. Exactly. So, so basically, if you think about it, there's two ways to pay right now in, in America, debit and credit. Credit makes sense because you're taking risk. The bank takes risk by giving you the money. Debit is just expensive, real-time payments. So the Federal Reserve is coming and saying, I'm going to build the rails that are going to offer this for free. And those, that's the disruption to debit, right? One now. question on that. Most of us experience debit as cheaper than credit because usually they'll say you want to run a credit card, it's 3% and a debit card, there's no fee. Why is debit itself still more expensive than, than what's coming? Because up, up until now, like there has been a, the Durban uh, regulation in 2012 basically reduced the, Durban, uh, the debit fees for large banks with you know, $10 billion of AOM or more, but they kept a loophole that allows smaller banks smaller banks to actually, you know, uh, charge like 152% for debit. And this shroomed into this like massive cottage industry, which mm. the entire fintech universe is living off. Mm. Basically, those unregulated interchange, you know, uh, the cash card is living off of that. Right? Explain basically. that a little bit more. So basically, every time you swipe a debit card from a small, that was issued by a small regional bank, right, then basically the the merchant pays like 2% on, on that. So $100, it's, you know, uh, $2. And those $2 actually go, or some of it goes to Visa, MasterCard, but a big part of it actually goes to the fintech that, that's sort of in charge of that card. That's interesting. Is it going to be a headwind for the small banks themselves at a time when they probably don't need one? There is actually, it's actually really interesting. There's a very small number of banks, you know, like one of them is like Sutton Bank or Cross River Bank. Those are, you know, private banks. They basically are running this, the vast majority, I would say, of these like unregulated interchanges. So the, the normal regional bank isn't as exposed mm -hmm. as these sort of, I would call them like 
you know, unregulated money center banks. That's basically how they operate right but now. But would you extend this thesis to even some of the big, big fintech players we can think of? I mean, I don't know who else to throw in this mix. PayPal, Venmo. I mean, Stripe isn't public yet. I mean, I think even Visa, it sounds. So why is it that this is going to affect the major players in, in such a major way? So I think Visa is actually the most exposed right now, right? And then we can trickle through. Visa is the most exposed because they have a product called Visa Direct. So if you think about the way an Uber pays its drivers right now, they're pushing money because the driver wants to get paid right away. So what Visa could do is say, hey, we have new rails now. Why do we have to pay interchange, 2% interchange, for something we can get for free for real time? So, so I would say ground zero is Visa Direct. And then it's going to be more debit applications that are expensive now. 40% of the cash apps uh, gross profit, roughly, is instant deposit. So people pay 175 basis points, 1.75% to send money directly to their bank accounts versus waiting two to three days. That should be offered for free over time. So now the conspiracy theorist in me comes out and I say, well, now I know why it took four years to launch this in the U.S. and it's not even going to be required and it could take years to literally roll out because institutionally there's so many people interested in this not moving forward. So what happens if this takes a long, long time to really reach scale? I think water always finds the lowest you know, point and I think if fees come down, eventually there's going to be innovation. I actually think fintech, fintech is going to thrive. It's just going to change. There's going to be a lot of innovation around Fed now, right? And, and you cannot avoid how it's going to be at the end. It might take a little bit of time, but I know how it's going to end. Is there anyone in the fintech space that you think is relatively better positioned to navigate this? I actually, this is a great question. I actually think the companies that don't make as much money off of interchange are the best ones, like a firm, right? <laughs> They make a money. A firm. Not the name most people are you know, hearing a lot of positivity Cor about. Correct. A firm doesn't really make much money off of interchange. They have debit plus, but their real core business is you know, making small time buy now, pay later loans. They're actually taking share from Visa MasterCard. Our favorite name, SoFi. They're a bank, right? They're doing really well, unrelated to that. Robinhood, a great exchange, hmm. not really making money. So I would say they add real value. Everyone else is just basically a tax on the consumer. That's very interesting and illuminates it in a way that I certainly didn't appreciate before. Dan, thanks. We always appreciate it. Thanks. Dan Kate. Dolev on FinTech. Coming up, the FTC's fight against Amazon reportedly poised to ramp up, and it's not just about those Prime memberships. We will have details next on The Exchange. Welcome back. The FTC is reportedly gearing up to file its biggest case yet against Amazon. That's the focus of today's Tech Check with Deirdre Bosa. About a percent decline in the shares today, Deirdre. Yeah, which isn't nothing. So if this is the FTC's quote-unquote big one against Amazon, it may have finally have gotten investors' attention. Because typically, Kelly, you don't see big tech move much on regulatory news or pressure. But this case targets Amazon's core e-commerce business. It is a unit that already has razor-thin margins and seen growth slow from the pandemic heyday. So Amazon's cut of each sale by merchants on the platform has been rising, surpassing 50% according to one study. So if Amazon is pressured to reduce that, that could hit those already thin margins. And we know that growth is also slowing at the profit engine, which is AWS. So that could hurt the Amazon thesis, although we have seen the company come back this year. Yeah, and this, I mean, we've heard so much, uh, you know, career-making cases to come here. At what point do investors get more concerned? I think that's exactly what they're doing. And I guess there's questions as well about the FTC's Lena Khan's role in this. She has um, published papers and gone into Amazon's business before, which which Amazon has said sort of precludes her from taking this on. But she's determined, certainly, and 
There have been three cases before this one targeting different areas of the business. But again, this one targets the core. And that has really been sort of the big question mark for investors. Did so well during the pandemic. Remember, Amazon built up a huge amount, doubled its warehouse capacity and has had to sort of pay for that since because e-commerce, that line that we thought was going to happen during the pandemic has sort of petered out a little bit and returned to somewhat normal. Yeah, absolutely. Deirdre, thanks. Appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, this retailer's shares are up about 5% over the past month, and they could have more room to run, says KeyBank, despite two potential student loan headwinds. We'll reveal the name and hear from the analyst behind that call next. And throughout June, CNBC is celebrating Pride Month by sharing stories of corporate leaders. Here is Goldman Sachs partner Michael Broadberry. Throughout my 20-year career at Goldman, some of my most rewarding experiences come from the fact that I'm an out professional, but also that I'm an ally to other out professionals in the LGBT and queer community at the firm, in particular colleagues who are parents or family members of either gender non-conforming or transgender children. This part of our community has grown. It's often invisible, but it has grown, and these colleagues need forums to help them connect, to help them share, and to help them to be seen and heard by others. And so as our communities needs change, we have a unique opportunity to be there for one another. So active allyship is there. Let's take the opportunity. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Supreme Court's decision on President Biden's student debt relief program is expected to come down tomorrow. Now, it's just as the pandemic moratorium on student loan repayments is poised to end. And that means monthly loan payments upwards of 400 bucks will soon restart monthly for about 27 million Americans, according to KeyBank. In a recent note, the firm goes on to say the resumption of those payments will have big implications for retailers. Joining me with the names at risk and the ones that could even benefit is Brad Thomas, managing director at KeyBank Capital Markets. He's here alongside CNBC.com retail reporter Melissa Repko. And welcome to you both. Bradley, I'll just start with you. I'm, I so want to hear the beneficiaries first. I can't help myself just because I'm curious, you know, who those might actually be. Well, Kelly, just to be clear, this is a net negative for the U.S. consumer. This is not a good thing that these payments are going to resume. But as we think about companies that are best positioned here, Walmart really stands out. Uh, they're clearly taking share in grocery with that double-digit growth far outpacing the industry, taking share on e-commerce uh, up 27% last quarter. Uh, and they've got some really compelling growth drivers in, in um, their marketplace initiative, advertising on the international front. And as you look at a little bit longer term, uh, we think they're going to be a leader in automation. That's really going to help them. So uh, a lot of reasons to like Walmart here, despite this net negative here for the consumer on the horizon. Now, you know, I'm not, that's a little less exciting now that you say it that way, because we always, you know, to think of Walmart as a beneficiary of kind of a pressure on the consumer does make a lot of sense. Melissa, let me turn to you. Who are some of the names people think could be most vulnerable? The vulnerable names are really the ones selling discretionary merchandise. And we're already hearing that a lot of those companies are under pressure. So companies, American Eagles come up, for example, if you hmm. think about kind of the, the retailers that cater to younger consumers who are going to be making these payments again early in career, Figs is another name came up. They sell scrubs. Right. People might be, you know, splurging on a higher end scrubs. Uh, the other companies that have come up are even TJ Maxx mm. that they sell clothes and clothes are definitely something people can put off or just not buy at all. Bradley, what are some of your most vulnerable names? You know, on the vulnerable side, we're continuing to wor worry about Target. Uh, our credit card data has continued to show some weakness over the last three weeks, down double digits in our proprietary data. Wow. Uh, we think that that 
you know, mid-market approach that they've got, really catering to a broad swath of Americans, puts them more at risk uh, for their customers deciding to shop over at Walmart. Um, you know, we also think this could continue to put pressure on Best Buy and Big Lots, uh, some other names where the customer is already uh, avoiding those retailers to some extent right now. And that's, Bradley, what I think is so interesting is that, into point, Melissa's point about uh, American Eagle, well, we know Abercrombie's doing a little better right now. So it's almost like if you scanned the names, like Target has some issues, obviously, after Pride, but like if you scan the retailers that are a little more vulnerable anyway, does, just, uh, does this just give them another headwind versus some of those that seem to be executing very well right now and can kind of weather this? That, that's exactly right. I, you know, in, in some cases, we feel like we're getting through that pig in the python, if you will, of the pandemic unwind headwind finally getting behind us. But as we layer in this, this $400 a month payment that we think many Americans are going to be facing uh, come September of this year, uh, it just looks like a continuation of some of that pressure on discretionary spending that's going to unfold as we head into this all-important holiday season. Yeah, and I know you do have Ollie's and Five Below. Um, you know, in some ways, those are discretionary, but obviously a much lower price point. You can have, Melissa, that kind of spontaneous fun, but but not at such a high level. Um, do you think most retailers are, are somehow preparing for this? I mean, what could they do? It's hard to know because this decision came really, it's a one-two punch, right? We're waiting for Supreme Court, but we heard about the moratorium ending after the retail earnings cycle did. So analysts didn't get that opportunity to ask retailers about it. We heard from Darden, a restaurant company, that they are expecting a little bit of an effect, but they said that a lot of their restaurant um, customers are actually making 100K or higher and so might be more insulated, more willing to keep going to Olive Garden and companies like that. We really haven't gotten an insight into retailers. And, you know, like we've talked about, they're under pressure. But to Walmart and Brad's point about that, I actually spoke to some borrowers who were saying what they were planning to do if once the payments start again and if their forgiveness does not happen. And one of them specifically told me, I'm going to start shopping for more of my produce and meat at Walmart mm -hmm. again. And I've been shopping more at places like farmer's markets that have a higher price tag. Interesting. And also, just to kind of disentangle this for a moment, we've been really emphasizing the $400 a month that's kind of coming either way. The question, Brad, tomorrow morning is whether the Supreme Court is it is it 20,000 or 10,000 that Biden's proposing to forgive? This would be a lower income consumer. So who would be more uh, sensitive to that ruling? It's, it's a great question, Kelly. Um, you know, I think it'd be the lower income you know, that would be more sensitive if this forgiveness goes through. Um, but make no mistake, even if uh, the Supreme Court allows the forgiveness to go through, uh, there, there will still be student debt out there and it still will be a net negative on the consumer as the payments resume. Right, absolutely. And Melissa. the distinction with the 20,000 is whether or not you had Pell Grants. So it's 10,000 if you don't have Pell Grants or 20,000 if you do. And of course, Pell Grants are dependent on your income background. So again, that might be a difference. And even that forgiveness, if it is upheld tomorrow, would extend only up to incomes of, do you remember the threshold? Maybe in the one, 150 kind of range? Yes, the, uh, the lower 100,000s. And, and so that will be an influence as well. But the question is really how much balance will uh, the average borrower end up with after the, after the decision tomorrow? And what will it mean that they're now having $300, $400 a month and remember, they're also spending on experiences again. So they're weighing things like going to a concert, going on a plane. And again, like Brad mentioned, it's happening just in time for the holiday season. It's true, so. Bradley. And I wonder, I mean, this isn't your coverage zone, but do you think some of those services, even some of the gym memberships, could that be more at risk than what you cover? A absolutely. We think this affects uh, a broad swath of America. I mean, 60% of, of American adults have attended some or all of college about 10% of adults have exposure 
uh, uh, to student loans and are in forbearance right now. So this is going to be very broad based. Uh, you know, the one other name I, I did just want to flag on the positive side, uh, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, um, again, near term, maybe a net negative, but they've been a big beneficiary of all the disruption out there for manufacturers and retailers. <laughs> Uh, you flagged the Bed Bath & Beyond bankruptcy earlier on the show. Right. Uh, Ollie's right now, you can find a lot of uh, clearance products from Bed Bath & Beyond that, huh. that Ollie's is selling for lower prices than Bed Bath used to sell it for. Oh. Uh, so we think that they will continue to be a big beneficiary of that disruption you're seeing out there right now in retail. And I know where I'm going this weekend. Some July 4th stuff I need to load up. Uh, Bradley, thank you so much. Bradley Thomas with KeyBank and, of course, our Melissa Repco. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.